Tuesday morning to you, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon Podcast. Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on June 2nd of 2013, under the headline, The D.B. Cooper Skyjacking Legend Took Flight Out of PDX. Here we go. It's the day before Thanksgiving, 1971. A slender, bland-looking man in a business suit several years out of style strolls up to the ticket counter at Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland and buys a single one-way ticket on Flight 305, bound for Seattle. He pays for it with a $20 bill. The agent asks for his name. Dan Cooper, he says. That's a 727, isn't it? Yes, he's told. That's right, it is. Local Northwest product built right in Seattle. Once he is settled into a seat in the very back row in the smoking section, Dan Cooper fires up a Raleigh, flags down stewardess Florence Schaffner, and orders a drink, bourbon and seven. He pays for it with another 20. The plane takes off. When Florence comes back with his change, he hands her an envelope. This happens a lot to stewardesses in 1971, when airlines are still actually competing on the sexiness of their stewardesses. Usually they're either love notes or straight-up propositions. It could be just a name and phone number. It could be an invitation to consummate a business transaction. She doesn't know. She doesn't care. She could not be less interested. She drops the note in her purse and moves on. Miss, he calls after her. I think you'd better have a look at that note. She looks. Here's what it says. I have a bomb here, and I want you to sit by me. Florence walks back to his row and sits down. He shows her the bomb. It's in his briefcase, five or six long red things that are either dynamite or road flares, and a tangle of wires and a battery. He tells her it will go off if he touches a wire to the battery. They're at about a thousand feet in climbing. She's not about to call this bluff. The man has Florence take dictation with his demands. He wants $200,000 in, quote, unmarked American currency in a knapsack. He wants four parachutes, two back chutes, and two chest chutes. He wants a fuel truck on the ground at Seattle and food for the flight crew because it's going to be a long night for them. Florence takes the note up to the captain's cabin. While she's doing this, the other stewardess, Tina Mucklow, picks up the plane's intercom, they call it the interphone, and alerts the cockpit that the plane is being hijacked. The hijacker is starting to look more nervous. He gets out a pair of sunglasses, puts them on. Up in the cockpit, Florence hands over the note. She describes the guy as mid-forties, brown eyes, short black hair, olive complexion. The captain asks her to sit in the jump seat with the headphones on and take notes of everything that happens. The plane doesn't have a recording system except the black box, which is on a 30-minute loop. If the plane blows up, the captain wants there to be some record of what happened. Back in his seat, the hijacker is getting visibly nervous, waiting and watching for Florence to return. Tina, the other stewardess, starts worrying that he might panic and destroy them all, so she walks over and sits down next to him, taking Florence's place. So he asks her to get on the interphone. 
He used the actual term somewhat to her surprise since most passengers called it something else like the phone or the intercom and relay messages for him. The captain assures the hijacker through Tina that all the demands will be met and turns on the fasten seatbelt sign to discourage passengers from milling around. A few minutes later, the senior stewardess tries to rescue Tina by asking her to go fetch a pack of playing cards. The hijacker interrupts. Never mind about the playing cards. Go back to your station. Again, he's talking like an insider, somebody who knows how a passenger airliner works. Northwest Orient Flight 305 is a short flight, only half an hour. They'll be ready to land in Seattle long before the parachutes and money are ready. So the hijacker orders the captain to fly a holding pattern until all is ready. This plan is making the stewardesses very nervous. They're a bit afraid that the longer the plane is in the air, the more likely the passengers are to figure out what's going on and that one of them will decide to be a hero and get them all killed. Specifically, they're worried about the burly college man sitting across the aisle from the hijacker shooting occasional hostile glances at him. This college man, it turned out, was getting more and more annoyed because the cute blonde stewardess, whom he would have liked to get to know better, was sitting there next to this old, poorly dressed nobody the whole time. The captain gets on the speakers and tells everyone that the plane is experiencing a minor mechanical problem and will be circling to burn off some excess fuel as a precautionary measure. As a side note, this cannot have been particularly reassuring. The skipper also invites them to move forward in the airplane into first class if possible, and most people take him up on it. The college man does not. The plane circles for some time while airline people scramble to get parachutes and money together. They're having trouble with this. After all, it's after business hours on the day before Thanksgiving. The hijacker is getting more and more agitated as the minutes tick by. Finally, two hours into a half-hour flight, the plane is ready to land. The hijacker has some final instructions. He wants the fuel truck, vehicle with his money, and the air stairs at the 10 o'clock position so he can see them from his window. Tina notices that again he's talking like an airline man, calling the air stairs by the industry standard term. The hijacker sends Tina out to get the money, which she drags back, 20 pounds of $20 bills. It's not in a knapsack, which causes the hijacker to get a little annoyed, but he lets the passengers go anyway. Of course, the passengers are immediately corralled and hustled down to a debriefing room to be inventoried and checked against the list of folks who boarded the plane. There are 35 of them. Everyone on the list is there except one, Dan Cooper. Meanwhile, back on the airplane, Dan Cooper himself is busy inspecting his loot and shoots and making plans. We'll talk about how those plans went down in next week's column. Sources for this story included works by Jeffrey Gray and Ralph Himmelsbach. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, you might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are offbeat Oregon history type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. 
questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode, email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.